Welcome to the Faith and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Kelsey Newsom. I work as a macro social worker in West Michigan. And I'm Bruce Vendrager. I work as Executive Director of Pastoral Services for an organization in West Michigan called Hope Network. Together, we are the hosts of the Faith and Mental Health Podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bearing Hope, a collaborative group made up of the Christian Reformed Church in North America, the Reformed Church in America, Hope Network, Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services, and the Mental Health Foundation of West Michigan, Be Nice. We believe, particularly now, it is vital to begin conversations about mental health and faith. Together, we will explore questions and topics about leadership while also maintaining mental health, leading others who are new to understanding mental health, parenting through mental health, and so much more. We are concerned about thoughtfulness around mental health as it relates to all aspects of life and faith. Welcome to the Faith and Mental Health Podcast. This first season, we have eight episodes, and each episode is a different topic, all kind of through the lens of the pandemic and what it's been like the past 11 months or so, but also some just relevant mental health topics all the time. So this episode specifically, we want to talk about what it's like for pastors to take care of themselves, what it might mean for a pastor to care for themselves if they themselves have some sort of mental health concern, um, how they just care for themselves in a preventative way in general anyway. So yeah, I think we can dive in with just if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself um, and what your role is where you are. I'm a RCA ordained minister and served for about 28 years as director of pastoral care at the Christian Healthcare Center in Wyckoff, New Jersey, uh, where I was also a mental health chaplain and uh, served in both outpatient and inpatient settings as a therapist and as a chaplain uh, there at the healthcare center. Uh, while there, I, I supervised a number of graduate level interns. Uh, both in divinity, master of divinity programs, but also MA and MSW programs. Uh, and uh, a fair amount of my work was also working with uh, faith communities in the area. Part of the Christian Healthcare Center's ministry is to do outreach, uh, to provide resources to local faith communities, uh, clergy, and their work with congregations. So we had a number of different outreach ministries that we would do with them. And one of them was to provide a number of clergy support groups. Uh, so over the years, I've uh, facilitated at any given time two or three different groups of clergy that are meeting to support each other and to guide each other professionally. Uh, a little different than a coaching system in that it gets a little more personal, a little more uh, professional, and I think maybe a little more transparent in some ways. Um, and that was actually something initiated by some local clergy that asked me to help facilitate that. Uh, I retired from the healthcare center uh, officially last year, but that ministry continues to go on. I work with uh, currently right now one uh, clergy group uh, that are not all RCA folks. Most of them are, um, but uh, people of various different degrees of experience and uh, uh, expertise and theologies. Uh, so that's where I'm currently doing my work in retirement. Could Very you tell good. us some more about those support groups? So any trends that you noticed? Are people desperate for that kind of support? Um, what are they really looking for out of it? Any success stories that you've heard? Yeah, it's changed. Uh, I, I think over the years in the pre-pandemic, 
most of the clergy that were in our groups would say it's been a life-saving thing for them to be a part of, whether those programs were denominationally endorsed or they went ahead and they got them on their own. They were things that enabled them to not only get expertise and to be able to share with other clergy what some of the, the issues were, and especially with with their personal issues, with family and, and the struggles of trying to balance all the different things of ministry. Uh, but, but also, uh, since the pandemic, I think it's been even more critical uh, that uh, in, in days of isolation, because of the pandemic, we're finding, I'm finding, that these clergy have, have a real strong need to be in communion with each other, uh, to be able to talk about their frustrations, and to be frankly brutally honest with each other. Uh, in terms of what they're doing. Um, we, at, while I was at the healthcare center, we also established uh, a clergy spouse support group system. Uh, and some of the clergy that are in my groups have had spouses that have been part of that uh, spouse support system as well. Uh, which, you know, again, without, without equivocation, they've all said, this has been one of the things that's helped them be sustained in ministry. Uh, is knowing that there's other people out there that are going through the same thing and that they can talk to these people. So, Jim, in the in, in your history, um, in your experience over time, have you noticed then, was there a reluctance, say, 25, 30 years ago for, for pastors to kind of admit their vulnerabilities, to admit uh, some of these struggles they're going through um, and less so today, or has... Um, has that changed at all? Good question. Um, I, I, I still encounter reluctance and resistance uh, because part of what we've done in the past is we've invite clergy to be parts of groups. Uh, one of the things that we, we held at the healthcare center were uh, clergy days and, and clergy uh, uh, small educational events. And we would always include an invitation to be part of a group. And, uh, there would always be a minority of those that would respond to, to that and say yes. Uh, now, part of that is because of busyness. Part of that is because of perhaps a reluctance to, to share and to be vulnerable. Part of that is, is just an I can do it on my own uh, and, and that sense of individualism um, that we, we still see. I don't know how much that's changed, Bruce. Um, especially during a pandemic, I don't know how much that's changed. My, I, I wish that I could hear from more pastors that they're, uh, that they're expressing a desired need for that. But I, I don't hear that from clergy anymore now than I did before. And I, and I, I have some personal theories about that. My, my theories are that, that because of the pandemic, clergy are very uh, stressed out and, and, uh, and are not finding it easy to reach out beyond themselves for help. You know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot more sense of I have to do this on my own and I have to handle this uh, uh, pandemic situation on my own and I'll get congregational help if I have to and I hope that it's there hope that it's there uh, but but it's kind of like reaching out for clergy support is one of the last things you do because there's just not time and energy to do it. Yeah, I think, you know, I just in conversations I've had with my pastor, um, he's expressed the um, just the exhaustion of learning new things, new ways to 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 lead worship, new ways to communicate um, that has just taken so much more energy that uh, by the end of 
you know, by the end of the week as he's getting ready for, for the Sunday service, he just doesn't, he feels completely spent um, emotionally. Now I think, you know, over time they've learned that, but certainly it has been a, it's been a new ball game for most people going live stream and going on, you know, all these different devices, right? Dramatically different. And when it, one, what I'm hearing from them is just the, the, the challenges of doing ministry differently now than they were a year ago. Uh, and to be thrown that curveball so quickly where they, they had to adjust on the spot. Uh, and then to have one week be different than the next week, because this week, this particular technology is working, the next week it's not. And then to realize that, that the rules of engagement are changing, how many people you can have in, in your building, how many you can't. All those things are constantly changing. Uh, I remember at one point this would have been uh, this would have been late spring last year uh, to a person in my my clergy group. They said we are beyond words of expressing our feelings. We don't know what this feeling is. We've never had this before. We are at the end of the rope. Uh, and the couple of them had talked about the fact that I, you know, am I done with this? I, you know, I'm not trained for this. And if this is what the future is going to hold, I can't do this. Uh, so the, that sense of exhaustion goes, goes way down deep uh, in a lot of ways, just emotionally for a lot of the clergy. Um, and I, I, I kudos to you for talking to your pastor, because I think uh, a lot of congregants aren't doing that with their pastors. Uh, I think there are a lot of assumptions out there that clergy are doing fine. Thank you very much. In fact, they're probably doing better because they're doing less. You know, they're not visiting the <laughs> right. hospital. They're not going to the nursing home. They're just sitting at home, you know, and um, that isn't true. Uh, the stress is just very, very different than than other stresses that they've been used to in ministry. So so this new foreign world, this this foreign uh, world that they're walking through uh, doesn't have a roadmap for them. Uh, and they're, they're, a lot of them are making it up, which is why they need to talk to people. You talked some about the reluctance that pastors and clergy members feel um, when it comes to being vulnerable. <laughs> Can you talk more about that? So. What are some of the risks that come with being vulnerable specifically for pastors and what what can we do to help mitigate those to make this conversation more possible? Cler clergy go into, the, clergy feel a call uh, and are coming in with various temperaments just like everybody else. You know, some people just desperately want to help other people and not desperately, but genuinely want to help other people. Uh, some people want to make, make a difference uh, in, in a global way. Some people do it for the sense of bringing in justice. Some people do it for just proclaiming the word. I mean, all different reasons for why clergy feel a sense of call to that. So, you know, a lot of clergy are going into this without necessarily um, feeling, feeling a desire to be known uh, I want to say that. Uh, I remember my one of my supervisors once said to me that most clergy are are really basically afraid of their congregations. <laughs> uh, he surprised me when he said that, and then I had I had to think about my own experience. And I realized, yeah, there's there's a fair amount of those people that I was afraid of. I didn't want them to get to know me that well, 
Uh, and I was one of those people that was pretty transparent in the pulpit. Uh, but my transparency in the pulpit also got me into trouble once in a while. You know, that I had one elder once tell me that, you know, I, I grew up not knowing my, my minister, and I know you, and I know your faults, and I know your failings, and I don't think I like that. Uh, so th there is a risk involved in transparency and vulnerability. Uh, Brene Brown has been wonderful in helping us understand what vulnerability means. And I think that that's a fairly new thing. And for clergy, it's a fairly new thing at all, uh, as well. So it's risky to be vulnerable. And yet we all have come to know, or many of us have come to know, that vulnerability also brings about a deeper sense of passion and a deeper sense of connectivity and a deeper sense of engagement with people. So I think we're learning that. But I think um, there, there is that sense of if, if I tell, if I'm too transparent, especially with my congregation, how is that going to come back at me? Uh, so can I be transparent with other clergy? Yeah, maybe. But in some climates and areas and contexts, uh, you're in competition with other clergy. Uh, you know, you're, 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 maybe you're in a small town and, and one congregation is larger than another. And, and now you're talking about, you know, drawing people from the same network. And so how transparent can you be in that area too? Um, there, there's, so there are a lot of mitigating factors uh, that, that push against being really vulnerable to others as clergy. Then you get a whole other temperament that says, I should be able to do this on my own. You know, I should be functional. I should be, you get a lot of the shoulds that come into that. Uh, I should be this, I should be that. And it's kind of like a, a, a striving to be someone who we're maybe not necessarily made to be. Uh, so it's a complex question, I, I, I think. Uh, uh, and I'm not sure that there's an easy answer to that, Kelsey. Uh, but I think one of the things we can do is that we can, as we continue to grow in our own self-health, and our own self-awareness, if we can continue to grow in our honesty with ourselves and with each other, I think some of those walls can begin to break down a little bit. When I was um, ordained in 1996, um, there was one of those things about two or three years into ministry it, um, that I think I was, I wasn't willing to be terribly vulnerable initially. Uh, but it was like, I discovered uh, this was something like we never talked about in, in seminary um, was how lonely ministry can be. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, it just felt so, uh, so alone for a while. And I, I did get, uh, you know, seek some er areas to discuss this with others and, and kind of get into touch with because I was not being vulnerable there. I mean, they're finding that balance of vulnerability with, you know, over sort of being over transparent and being this, um, turning the pulpit into your own sort right. of like, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I just, I just remember that, um, the, the ministry was uh, just a lonely place at times. And I think even over the 25 years that I've served in ministry, I've had times of that as well. Um, it was a big discovery initially, but but yet it continues to be today because um, just because of some of the things you touched on, I yeah. think. Yeah, and I think most ministers would say that their congregation really doesn't know them and really doesn't know what they do, which gets into a little bit of the, the subject of 
clergy stress and clergy compassion fatigue and how clergy are doing right now. Because if, if a congregation only sees their pastor over a, over a uh, electronic virtual worship uh, method uh, on a Sunday morning, they're, they're not really seeing in person and they're not really getting t- time to stand and talk with the pastor, find out or be able to even see through their body language how they're doing. Um, I, I would hope that congregations, when you mentioned that you talk to your pastor, I would hope that there are other congregations and other people who are talking to their pastors and saying, how is this for you? What is this like for you? How can we help you? Um, that I think the last session I had with my clergy, they spent pretty much a, a majority of the time talking about how to do music mm. because of all the licensing issues that are, that are involved in doing music. Uh, and can you sing? Can you not sing? Um, uh, how, how do you incorporate music into your electronic media and, and whether you should or shouldn't? I mean, they're the loss for that. And there's so many different avenues out there. And each one of those is another stress producer. You know, how do I get this information? How do I find this particular link? How do I manage to do this and maneuver through this system? And uh, the congregation has no idea that that's going on before Sunday morning. None. And they know it. That's part of the loneliness. So there's a version of this conversation that I've been having in my personal life recently. So I'll give you some backstory and then ask for your thoughts on it. I, up until a month or two ago, also worked for a church in addition to my full-time employment, um, got promoted in my full-time employment, decided it was time to step away from my work with the church, still do some like minimal volunteering, so a little bit of faith leadership, but largely stepped away from ministry for a season. Um, and what I felt was a lot of, you know, like there's a lot of conversation around discerning your call to ministry. And very little conversation, at least that made it to me, about discerning when it's time to step away or time to make a change. Do you have any thoughts or any like observations on people feeling the pressure to stay where they at one point felt a call and not move from that position? Mm, really good question. Um, you know, call is one of those things that's so amorphous. Uh, and, and when we're talking to our our classes, uh, candidate under care committees, you know, and we usually are asked, how do you get that sense of call? There's also a question of how do you, how do you maintain or feel a continuing sense of call? Mm-hmm. Um, when I, when I've talked with clergy, uh, about whether or not they should move, for example, and this isn't necessarily leaving ministry or leaving parish ministry, but it's, going from one church to another, going from the one church to maybe a specialized ministry. One of the things that I talk about is, do you feel a call away from? Because we, we talk about calls to something, but do we talk about a call away from something? And I, I think there's something to be said about that, is that when in your heart of hearts, uh, you begin to feel uh, a, a call to, to say, okay, your work here is done. You, you, you've done what you can do. Uh, your, your gifts have been used, you've been, you've been profitable, you've been faithful, you've been whatever it is that, that gives you that sense of meaning and purpose in where you've done that. Do you feel released from that? Um, I, I, I was serving a congregation uh, that was in conflict at one particular point, and I had a group of people that came to me uh, that were part of the consistory, and they used that language. They said, we want you to feel released from this call. Uh, and, and that 
for me was something that was the spirit of God saying, okay, you are done. Uh, that sense of commitment that you had is, is no longer binding you to that call. Uh, so, so I, I think that it's not just about functionality, but the functionality is a large part of that. And when I hear clergy in today talk about the fact that I, I, could, I could give this all up, it's because they don't know how to do the new church. They're, they're not, they've not been trained in seminary to know how to do this. And so they question their own functionality and their ability. Uh, how do you do pastoral care in a pandemic? It's been a huge, huge issue. Uh, the, the clergy that, that can't visit the sick, they can't visit the dying, they can't visit the families, the most they can do is make a phone call, uh, feel terribly ineffective, terribly ineffective, and, and that results in questioning their own call. So, so call has a little combination of functionality and a sense of uh, uh, effectiveness, but it also has a deeper spiritual sense, I think, within the person that says meaning and completeness uh, and, and um, uh, a sense of, um, of purpose in that. And when you, when you feel a release from both of those, I think, uh, is maybe a clue to that, Kelsey. I don't know if that helps, but, you know, that, that's kind of how I, I see that. There's both, mm -hmm. there's both a spiritual component as well as a functional component to that. I think that language of be, being released from it is so helpful. Um, and I'm thinking of words like, you know, you've fulfilled your call or you've yeah. um, satisfied that call. Because I think so many of us feel like if we're called away from something, it's because we did something wrong. Did mm -hmm. we fail? Are we no longer good enough? Did something about us change when the reality might be we've done our part and now there's just something else? And, and some of our part uh, may not be seen as successful uh, in the mm -hmm. eyes of other people. Some of, some of what is our part is simply to call out truth and to call out, as the prophet would do, to call out the, the truth of God. And to, to it's, it's not our job to necessarily fix that either. <laughs> it's our job to sometimes just name it. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and God will take care of the rest of that. So, Jim, in your um, in your experience, uh, have you have you seen a church or a pastor who has um, who has taken a leave of absence, uh, not necessarily left the church or felt like their um, you know their time in ministry was done at that particular church or just ministry in general, but taken a leave of absence for mental health reasons and and how effective. If you've seen that, how effective has that been? Um, do you can you talk about maybe some tools? Maybe offer some suggestions as to how a church and pastors can um, create a healthy environment for those kind of conversations. I, I I'd like to say, Bruce, that I have have seen it more often than I have. Uh, the the times that I've seen it have been critically difficult crises times. Uh, that usually don't end up well. Uh, you know, times when a pastor is so, so broken uh, that it ends up being a breakdown of some sort and, and hospitalization is resulting and they simply can't go back. Uh, I wish that we were at a place where we could uh, prevent that a bit by taking the leave a little bit earlier than when it becomes that critical. But again, 
our clergy mindset is not geared toward that necessarily, and nor is congregational mindset geared toward that. I think if, again, if we were more uh, honest with each other and more understanding and tolerant and, and compassionate with each other, we would recognize that clergy are no different than other people who sometimes struggle with mental health issues. In fact, statistically, clergy struggle with depression and anxiety more often than, uh, than other people. Uh, and my, my experience is that they are less likely to get help with it either. Um, so, you know, that when we when we talk about a leave of absence for clergy, and actually the RCA and the CRC have worked together on forming guidelines for clergy leave of absence for mental health purposes, uh, we talk about the clergy seeking professional help and getting some professional help to actually document what that need is, and that may not be a full blown clinical depression. That may be a depression that needs to be addressed now before it spirals out of control. Uh, and it may be a break. It's not, it's not a sabbatical. It's, it's a, a break from uh, the, the normal uh, uh, thing that's draining that pastor uh, or bringing that pastor down. Um, but that's got to be done in consultation with the congregation as well. And that's where it gets tricky because, you know, how much does a pastor want a congregation to know that they need a leave of absence for mental health reasons. So hopefully, and again, I, you're hoping to trust that there are people within that congregation that can handle that well and pastorally. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't happen in every congregation, obviously, but you, you, you'd like to think that there's somebody there that can. Frequently, you need an advocate to help work with that, to work with consistory. Uh, classes usually needs to be involved to approve of leave of absence. Uh, so it's, it has to be handled very, very carefully. But my, my hunch is that usually it's, it's somebody within the congregation that has to initiate that, um, that it's not going to be the, the clergy that's going to say, I've, I've failed and I have to go get help and have to have a leave of absence. They may go get help, but they're not going to tell anybody um, very seldom. So, you know, it has to be the congregation, uh, somebody in the congregation that says, uh, we're, we care about you. We're concerned about you. Uh, and, and we think you may need a break here a little bit. Um, and, and there is such a thing as compassion fatigue. It's different than burnout. Uh, I think in, the, in pandemic world, I think both of those things are effective. And ironically, or maybe paradoxically, I think clergy suffer from compassion fatigue in this day and age in pandemic world, not because they're encountering the 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 major issues of struggle in the lives of their congregants, but because they're doing it vicariously. Mm -hmm. they, they, they can't do it directly, and so they're doing it indirectly. And I think that the absence of direct care leads to a, a, a new kind of compassion fatigue. Um, and maybe that's closer to burnout. I'm not sure. I have, you know, it's, a, it's a different thing, but it, whatever it is, it, it's draining them significantly. Yeah, so much of ministry is incarnational, isn't it? And yeah. that's been taken away in the yeah. last in the last year. Yeah, and, and I think a whole other issue that that my clergy are talking about is not only the micro stuff of how do you manage pastoral care, how do you manage worship virtually, how do you decide how many people are going to be there? Do they have to wash their hands? Do they have to have, to have a test? How do you have the ushers go in there? How do you do communion? All of those detailed kind of things, those microcosmic kind of things. But there's now a macro thing happening. And that macro thing is, is the church changing significantly in such a way that I don't know what that's going to look like? 
Um, now that we're broadcasting, we've got people calling up from, from out of state, across country, saying, I've been watching your worship service. I like what I see. Can I become a member? And our book of church order is not equipped to handle that. And then when they ask for a baptism, how are you going to do that one? Uh, these are huge, huge issues uh, that that are changing the very nature of church. And um, wow, our, our clergy just are not ready for, for that one. And they know it. They know it. And that's where I'm hearing a lot of the stuff, too, to say, uh, especially the ones that are closer to retirement. They're saying, I was going to go another year. I don't need to do that mm -hmm. anymore. You know, I just don't need to do that. Yeah. Uh, so, so I'm hoping that we have some resources to be able to help clergy, whether the seminaries can do some stuff to be able to help clergy through, through some of these huge, huge uh, paradigm shifts that are going on right now uh, because um, it, they're struggling with it. And leave of absence would make sense to some. Uh, let me tell you, another thing that I'm seeing is, though, that because clergy are under such strain right now, they, they find it difficult to do one more thing. So like if somebody says, have you tried exercising? The response that I hear is, I don't have enough energy to even think about that. Or have you tried this particular website that might help with you know, getting your, your worship services streamlined more? I don't have the energy to do one more thing like that. They... There's just nothing left in that in that vessel, you know, uh, and they've been doing it for a while now. So I'm, I'm hearing a little less of the frantic stuff, but I'm hearing a lot of just uh, shrugging of shoulder and saying, you know, what are you going to do? It is what it is. And mm -hmm. a couple of clergy said to me, we can't plan six months in advance, a year in advance. You, you can't plan anything. You can't plan a sermon series or anything like that that far in advance because things are changing too quickly. You can't plan really a month in advance. You're going week to week and sometimes day to day. And congregations don't know that. They just don't know that. And that's that loneliness thing all over again. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that through means like this that, that people can hear that and they can reach out and they can say, you know, how's, how's it going for you? And uh, what do you need? Uh, for a while there uh, in, in my group, the clergy had not had a day off in like five, six months, a Sunday off mm -hmm. rather, in five or six months. They were just steady right at it. And um, my group, it was good. They started to encourage each other to say, how can we cover for you? In fact, one of the members of, of the group was instrumental in reaching out to the denomination saying, can you provide us with a worship service? that we mm. can just play so that we don't have to worry about coming up with something sure. all the time. Um, they knew that. So how do people get connected um, to a group like that, either this group specifically or, you know, is there, do people call the denomination? Is there a website, anything like that? Well, the denomination has a couple of different things going. And, and I think all of them are fairly adaptive. And I, I think they have a uh, the denomination. We have a new program that's been out there that I think all of these are, are a similar kind of thing uh, to, to different groups. Um, when I first came to Passaic Valley classes, there was a brown bag lunch. And it had been going on for years. And uh, it was once a month, clergy would gather for lunch. 
it was not terribly in depth and not terribly deepening the level of intimacy, but it was okay. You know, it was a chance where they got together. Uh, so a lot of times, Kelsey, I think clergy just need to recognize the need and to begin to reach out themselves. Again, it's hard to do that right now with no energy. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes classes, classes members, if there's a particular committee of classes that's responsible for clergy care can begin to facilitate something like that. Um, uh, I, I would think places like Pine Rest, uh, places out in, in Denver with uh, Quiet Waters, I, you know, I think if you reach out to those kind of places uh, and say, we need some help in establishing some stuff, uh, there, there are various models out there. Sometimes you need a facilitator, sometimes you don't. If you, you can rotate the leadership of that. So there's a lot of different models out there. Um, and, it, it, you know, if there are places that are already doing it, it's just a matter of plugging in and hoping you have an open group. But um, uh, otherwise, otherwise, clergy generally have to find their own. And that's tricky. Yeah, I think I can speak. I know that's not a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. Uh, I, I can speak from experience that, you know, in the course of my ministry, I was blessed to in my denomination, the Christian Reformed Church, we call them peer learning groups. And typically they they sort of evolved like a brown bag. You know, I mean, we might have started on <clears throat> studying something in particular, but then these friendships and these relationships were built. And um, over the course of you know four or five or six years, uh, as long as we all kind of stayed in our, in our same vicinity, we were able to to go deeper with each other and to, you know, just to have weekly or monthly coffee was uh, it was something that I looked forward to, even though there was this broad range of pastors and their experience and, and, you know, where they were in ministry, but um, it was just the, the friendships, the relationships were just as important as anything else. Yeah. And, and that's a good example of how a group can establish over another reason. I mean, uh, a number of clergy find it very easy to link together over a lectionary group, you know, to meet weekly over lectionary uh, do sermon prep, that kind of thing. And then that can evolve into something deeper over time. Because uh, ultimately it is about relationship. It's always about relationship. Uh, I've had a, uh, several clergy that when they moved into the area asked for that because of previous experience that they said, I knew before that I needed it. And so I've come into our particular area of Northern Jersey and said, what's available, what's out there. Um, other other. Uh, I had one group that started because they were all part of an evangelism task force and they knew they knew that they needed prayer and they knew that they needed to be able to talk to one another in, in, a, in a decent way around that task. And that grew and that developed into something, something more. So uh, maybe it's just a matter of starting easy with some people saying like the people in town saying, Let, let's get together and talk about what's going on in town and how we can uh, serve each other. Um, and, and again, in, in a time of isolation, I think it's hard to break down that wall. The, mm -hmm. the town that I live in is doing some really cool things in terms of helping people with food and clothing and stuff like that. But, but they're, not, they're not coordinating that, you know, in terms of the local congregation. Each congregation is kind of doing their own thing, which doesn't help any of those, those spiritual leaders in those congregations. Because mm -hmm. sometimes there's duplication of resources. That just doesn't make sense either. Again, but it's, it's a matter of reaching out of themselves and, and trying to push out. It's, it's like recognizing the need for exercise, recognizing the need to get out and walk. Uh, it, it's, it's, if I use the image of, of a person who's depressed, the person who's depressed, their world is getting closed in. 
it's it's becoming a, a vortex of inner energy that's just getting focused inside. And one of the things in order to break that is you have to start pushing back out again. You have to start pushing back out of yourself and to begin to experience and engage with the world that God has given to us. That's part of why we're created to be that way. We're not created to be isolated internal creatures. We're, in, we're, we're created to be engaged with creation and the world around us and the people around us. And that's one of the ways that I think depression is such a profanity is that it, it, it works against the way we're created to be. And that's, that's what I've just seen in so many people in the pandemic is that it's, it's working against how we're supposed to be. And we need to push out those walls to the best of our ability and with the strength that we have uh, to, to, to engage with what God has given to us. Very well said. Thank you, Jim. Well, we yeah. very much, very much appreciate the time that you've given us and yes. um, your wisdom and your experience and um, your gift of uh, caring for other pastors um, is is a very important role um, yet today. So thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you, too, for doing this. I think it's a wonderful idea. When Terry told us about it, I said, that's very what people are doing right now. I mean, you, you're, you, you listen to a podcast, you know, you're, yeah. you're on your exercise bike. Right. Know? Right. You're walking, you're doing something, you're listening to a podcast. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, very good. All right. So thank you. Yep, thanks, Jim.